0: Welcome back to another fantastic edition of the official 615 Podcast. Each week we have fantastic guests. And I'm not going to jinx it, Greg, because we get, this week we got another good one. Let's just keep riding the wave, brother.
1: Indeed, we are, again, recording this at Kitchen Notes Omni Nashville Hotel. A good buddy, Music City, Todd Rotemail. Put out the biscuits and the, all the honey and all the different stuff. stuff. And uh, maybe they'll bring some more for after you've ripped it all <laughs> off. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, always it, good to be here.
0: It is. And again, thank you to our good friends at Wilson County Hyundai. Proud sponsor of the official 615 podcast. Check them out online at wilsoncountyhyundai.com. Painbone and his staff do an incredible job of customer service, making you feel like number one, and their prices reflect that. So check them out online at WilsonCountyHyundai.com.
1: Our guest, John McAndrew, piano player, songwriter, music therapist, thus the crux of his invitation here today uh, with the Nashville-based Residential Addiction Treatment Center, Cumberland Heights. John, thanks for coming.
2: Well, thank you, and thanks for the biscuits, and uh, (laughs) I wasn't expecting all that. It's great to see you both. Really appreciate being here.
0: Well, I appreciate you coming here and doing this because we're going to get to a lot of things today and basically the the ground of this is addiction and how it's just taken over so many things with opioids and alcohol and everything that's going on. Uh, you've been dealing this for a while with the music therapy. Explain what music therapy is.
2: Well, just for background, I, I have my own issues with mental health and substance abuse issues. And uh, and then I'm also a musician and a recording artist. And uh, what I found is music has a great power to it, not only to heal, but it kind of gets into people's hearts, you know, and, and the truth can be spoken through music. Plus jumping around and pro- producing some dopamine, you know, and some energy in your brain. Music is a powerful tool. And we use that in, in the recovery field to just help people kind of start their journeys and then maintain a spiritual level of, you know, we can talk about that a little later, but music is really powerful effective tool.
1: And the science of it, let's talk about that because you you brought that up and I was reading this um, from Kamala Heights, uh, that uh, studies have shown that music um, playing or listening taps regions in the mind conducive to treating addiction stress emotion cognitive function physical pain Mm -hmm. and all those i would dare say listening to black sabbath wouldn't qualify for that well it depends on how loud it
2: is
1: (laughs) but there's the scientific component of it first we'll start there instead of just the the heart but there is a physical um you know science to this
2: here's what's fascinating with mri brain imaging which has gotten so sophisticated scientists and curious people have been looking at people's noggins under all sorts of influences. Like for example, people that pray and meditate, they took a group of those people and looked at their brains, compared them to people that didn't pray and meditate. And the people that pray and meditate, the brain, the frontal cortex is lit up like a Christmas tree. Blood flow, kind of what it says in this paper here with the brain, and it just increases a whole lot of things, including dopamine. So they they started doing that with music as well, and they found People used to think it was right brain, left brain, music only affects part. They found out music affects every part of the brain. And, it, you know, the healing, I'll give you an example of an amazing thing. I played the WC Handy Festival down in Florence, Alabama, about nine years ago. And I did some concerts, and because I'm a solo piano player, I can go in and, to an old folks' home and play some music. So I got a guitar player with me. We got an old beat up piano that's not even close to being in tune and half the keys are stuck together. And I've done this a million times. They wheel in the patients, and they bring in this lady named Ruth. And they said, don't bother with Ruth. She's been catatonic for about three years. But we're going to put her in the front row and just kind of smile at her and just know that she's not going to react to anything. Anyway, I go into all of me, you know, that old thing kind of, and I'm I'm all over the piano and stuff. I turned around and everybody's all excited and Ruth stood up, took her blanket off and started dancing. I mean, dancing. And the nurses are crying and they're like, she's gonna fall over, what's gonna happen? And I got done with that song and she sat down, put the blanket back on and she just went back to wherever she was. And this happens all the time with music. So you can imagine in recovery, when we bring people in, start playing music listening to it you know if they play an instrument we can get them on that a lot of stuff comes out and i think the key to everything getting healthy is get the stuff out you know get it out of us emotions yeah i saw the
1: glenn campbell uh with dementia alzheimer's uh, and, and tony bennett i'm understanding now that it was he might not know where he is or what he's doing or anything but the lyrics came back, the music came back, all of that. And I'm sure that that touched me. Uh, yeah. Having both of us have lost mothers from that, yeah, um, yeah, oh. it's yeah, it's um, it's powerful.
2: Yeah, and we have at Cumberland Heights. One day we do we did a we do a talent show, and this is you guys would love to see this. Um, kind of organize it in the morning, we do it in the afternoon, and this this kind of gets music and all sorts of stuff, but. And the patients are going crazy because they want to get out and move and talk and make some noise, you know. So one guy in the talent show is going to tell a few jokes, and I'm working with him at lunchtime. I go, listen, you know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I don't think I have to say, Mm -hmm. you know, be careful. And then another guy who played a little bit of guitar, just like a tiny bit, had never written a song, and it took us two weeks to write a song, and he wrote it. He was the second guy. The third guy was a really famous country pop star, big star. He was the third one. And the fourth one was an uh, elderly lady who said she wanted to do an interpretive dance. And so I got the talent show together. She asked me to just play some nice little melodic music and then she would do this dance. And this kind of encapsulates what happens with not only music, but all these expressive arts and treatment. The comedian got up, and I'm telling you, he had on bib overalls, and I'm thinking this, this could be really bad, I'm going to lose my job. <laughs> he went, just the timing was awesome, like five or six jokes, the whole place is on their feet, and, you know, they're laughing. Then the second guy comes up, who would never played in front of anybody and was just learning to play the guitar, he looked over at me and said, I can't do this. And I said, I'm sitting right here with you. And I'm at the piano, and you got no choice. You got to go ahead and play. And so he started the song, and, you know, the audience kind of knew what was going on. Right. His dudes never played. And um, so he kept going, and, and it was like a little kid getting up on his ice skates, and yeah. he started getting in the groove, and everybody's listening. And the whole place got on their feet. It was just beautiful. They went crazy. Then Mr. Big Pop Star comes up. And uh, by the way, they're all shaken when they get up there because they've never done this sober and half the people in there never done, have, you know, even listen to a comedian or a musician. Right. Sober. The third guy comes up, he's shaking like a leaf. He says, I can't do this. I said, yes, you can. We're going to go ahead. One, two, three. Here we go. He plays. The place goes crazy. You know, not as crazy as it did for the guy who wasn't so good. And then the fourth lady came up. And guys it was unbelievable. I play this little music, and she gets on one end of the auditorium, starts running, and flies up into the air, and does a pirouette in midair. She's seventy years old, and she lands, and it's so graceful. And we got a half the rooms from East Tennessee. You know, they don't know what ballet is. It doesn't look right, but they're just they're they're watching her fly. Wow. She lands, and she does this thing. She does a big bow. She comes over to me and hugs me, and She's just shaking, and I am going, oh, my God, where did you learn to do that? She said, I taught ballet at the New York City Ballet for 25 years. So the lesson is we don't know who we are a lot of times until we use this music and stuff like that.
0: Is it yeah. frustrating, John, because you make headway with five people, and then they go out into the world, and then here comes eight more, and then here comes ten more. It seems like it's this revolving door of addiction and helping people that seems it gets, I don't say worse every time, but it's like you get these five out in the world feeling good about themselves. And then here comes eight more. You got to train now and help out. Is it, does it get frustrating to you at some point?
2: Um, I think the frustrating part is the sadness. It's a hard job to have working in a treatment center. So you're around a lot of this sadness. Thank God. And I know there's hope and I know there's a solution but they keep coming and they keep coming. The, opi- the opioid epidemic is just off the charts. And alcohol, frankly, you know, has been a part of all of our lives forever and ever, and it's just kind of considered a normal thing, but alcohol is a very dangerous narcotic as well. The combination of those uh, impressions of, we don't want to have any pain, you know, you're in pain, we've got to give you some opioids, drinking makes us all happy but for a large part of the population and i venture to say it's way more than 10 or 15% that they say it's addictive and you know alcoholism and other addictions people's brains are just different and they can't handle it what's really hard joe is to see how it affects families for every man woman you know young person that comes into treatment there's a mom and a dad and a brother and a sister and a boyfriend and a girlfriend that's been affected by the disease and i think that's probably why we talk about it more and i you know i'm really i'm grateful that you're talking about this on your show because people need to know how the disease works and how our brains work cuz an alcoholic and a drug addict, you put one little speck of anything in their in their brain, and they're just off, and they can't stop.
0: You've been through the battle. Uh, yeah. At what point did you realize you needed help? Are you to talk about that? Is it therapeutic <clears throat> to talk about it? Do you not like talking about it?
2: Well, I you know, I can get some general stuff. I think I knew I needed help in um, 1983. I'm up in Brainerd, Minnesota, and I'm playing at a bar, you know, a really nice bar. You guys, the whole bar was red. The ceiling, the walls, the floor. (laughs) It had that great smell of used, lots of liquids all over it. It just stunk. it was horrible. And I remember the Saturday night before I had to do a talent show on that Sunday, they found me walking down the freeway, you know, in a blackout wearing a guitar and a pair of socks. And I had already known I was in trouble 10 years before that. You know, I was a type 1 diabetic in a hospital seeing little green monsters, you know, and those are the DTs, you know. And, uh, and I had a choice of trying to get better and take care of my diabetes and stop drinking, and I, I just couldn't stop drinking. So, uh, you know, I got help in 1983, and I've been on this path. And I can tell you one thing is that it's really hard for people that don't understand, but you just can't do it by yourself. You need others, you need another like a person to talk to and, you know, and uh, you need a power a little greater in yourself because self-reliance, you know, we're all told to be John Wayne and all that kind of stuff, but against this monster, you're going (laughs) to, you're going to get your butt kicked, you know? (laughs) So, Kind of like Notre Dame playing Alabama, just to throw a little sports no, thank analogy. You, thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know uh, what? Uh, what the joke is now that you know people in the Midwest and the Northeast make fun of the South because. You know uh we rarely get snow and don't know how to act and the joke is well you rarely win a college football championship so you sure the hell don't don't know how to act Uh,
2: so um uh, that was perfect yes
1: you you, minneapolis is at home in that area The yeah i i
2: I moved around a lot as a kid born in wisconsin moved to ohio uh, then moved to minnesota then moved to pittsburgh for high school and then we moved to minnesota and that's kind of where i settled for a good 30 years St. Paul, Minneapolis area, yeah, and I played played music almost every night since I was probably 19, 20 years old. Then I had day jobs, all of which I lost, and, you know, truck driver. I was an Electrolux repairman. If you need your vacuum fixed, I got all the moves. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: good to know Is that. It? But the, I mean, there are certain things, and certainly the world of, of music uh, does not lends itself to sobriety in a lot of
2: ways does no, it no it because doesn't. of the the culture it doesn't and i mean if you go back in a wider lens you almost can see like all of our culture but absolutely music is where you go hear music in a bar primarily and uh at Cumberland Heights is kind of a nice time to talk about that. And we, we have a musicians professionals program and I coordinate that and we get musicians from all over the world and, uh, they get sent to us from a part of the Grammys called music care It's one of the greatest organizations. They help musicians in a lot of ways. But this whole thing about some of these musicians come in and they're really, really famous and they're trying to get sober and they go, I, I don't know if I can be creative how am I supposed to be sober in this environment? What do I do? All sorts of questions like that. So there's many musicians that are in recovery that are uh, good tools and good resources to help these guys, you know, with those kinds of questions. And there's a lot of people that can stay sober, but they get support, you know, and they get help. And, you know, what do you do if you're you know, this happens a lot and I, you know, I just know lots of secrets, but, you know, you got a major country artist and their, their biggest sponsor is one of these whiskey outfits or something and uh, that whiskey is everywhere and it's also in their bank account, you know, and they have to deal with these sorts of things. So there's a lot of great management there's a lot of great people that in tour support that are all becoming aware of you know what you're just asking about is you know how do they stay sober in that environment it's absolutely possible now some of them need to find a new environment that's possible you know they may not be ready but uh you know i continue to play music and i've made it through this quagmire now i don't some of the places I used to play, I, I won't say it, uh, some of them on the air, but uh, I don't play in some places anymore. You know, I'd like to have a little different audience, particularly one that's awake.
0: <laughs> uh, let <laughs> me know? ask you, how much does humility play in? this with somebody trying to get themselves better? Because I could think sometimes people come in are like, I don't need you, John. I, I'm only here for 30 days. I'll get out of here. Do you, does humility take them to that next step where they need to keep going on that road to recovery?
2: That's a really good question. And, uh, you know, we would hope that some humility has entered the room just in them going, you know, whoa, I need some help, you know. Some of them, the police help them get here or families. But at a place like Cumberland Heights, it's multidisciplinary, a fancy word for there's a whole lot of really good people with all sorts of things to help them. But I think your question is the basic thing we try to get to the heart of is, is this selfishness and self-centeredness and that I can't do this by myself. And, and that, that is humility. And sometimes you'll hear people say they got to just have their head beat in until they go, please, you know, please help me the trick is maintaining that humility i guess is to stay sober because some people go out and go well i got this you know i don't need any help and you watch them falter and and fall
0: that was my next question is you work with somebody work with somebody and then at one o'clock in the morning you get a phone call hey john uh i need your help i'm in jail or did this or that uh does that back to the frustration part, does that, I, at first you hate that phone call, getting that. Obviously, it's like, God, I worked so hard with this person, and so hard, and then I'm not going to give up on you, don't give up on me. I mean, is there, does it get to you? Does it irritate you when somebody has that problem after you worked with them so much? Or is it expected that they could fall off the traditional wagon, as you say?
2: Well, um, you know, they come through uh, Cumberland Heights and then they go to various places to get help, you know, those the fellowships and all that. And so that's a part of all that equation. And, and you know, I'm not surprised. And why would we be surprised? That's what alcoholics and, and addicts do. And evidently, they've just not kind of picked up some tools that they were given, you know. So we just, you know, you pick them up and you say, I love you, you know. And you need to come back and get some help. And, and then, you know, to your, to your question about humility, there's a little more humility the second, third time around. You know, It takes a little bit of a whooping. And uh, they change a little bit. And you get them through music, through art, through, you know, talking to a counselor or something to start looking at, you know, write this stuff out in the paper. And look honestly, this is what's happened to my life because I do this stuff. And then you show it to some other people (laughs) and you got nowhere to go. (laughs) And they start to get that through their head. You know, um, the evidence-based stuff, you know, which Cumberland uses a lot are all really good things, you know, to incorporate into recovery. So there's a whole lot of things that can happen. The trick is to get them into a safe environment where they're not drinking and using. And get their body just safely landed in a safe spot to start the discuss, you know, the discussion.
0: All right, you listen to the official 615 podcast brought to you by our good friends at Wilson County Hyundai. Check them out online at wilsoncountyhyundai.com.
1: Our guest, John McAndrew, a professional piano player, singer, songwriter, music therapist at the Nashville-based Residential Addiction Treatment Center, Cumberland Heights. Get us to Nashville. How did you get out of the frozen tundra and make it here? I, I was reading the bio that I, I printed off. Uh you were discovered. And and I, that was like in quotation marks, discovered. But get us to get us to Nashville.
2: Yeah, well, I'm, you know, I was really a late bloomer. I uh, you know, got straightened up and started to do things differently in my life. And then I I remember I had a little 45 out. <clears throat> of a song I wrote, which was really, really, really mediocre. (laughs) (laughs) So they played it on the local country station. And I was playing in a band at the uh, Mall of America. It was a big country venue and huge place. And I'm playing my original song that night right after Boot Scootin' Boogie was on. And so if you can envision a bunch of Norwegian Minnesotans with cowboy boots on trying to line dance and stuff, (laughs) and then I come on with my song and, you know, it goes over like a lead balloon. And I just had this, it was like a nightmare. And I said, you know what, I gotta, I'm going to try to sing and do my own stuff. And I quit that band, which was really paid a lot of money. And I got a solo gig playing in a fancy restaurant in Minneapolis, just playing piano. And I had to learn jazz standards and I'd never taken lessons. You know, you get sober, you start to kind of do a few things like practice and eat, (laughs) sleep. So I got, and I'm playing and there were some people from Nashville that had made it kind of big in the country scene. And one of their managers came to see me play. And then he brought me to Nashville, introduced me to somebody. And when I was 42 years old, I got my first deal, publishing deal, recording contract, and uh, they sent me down the Muscle Shoals studios. That's not bad.
1: Muscle Shoals,
2: huh? And boy. Yeah, Aretha. Yeah. Yeah. So, everybody, the parade of
1: people have come oh, through there. Oh, i
2: tell you what, and I was so green and knew so little about songwriting, but I was so, they said, you're really stubborn and self-centered and you want to do everything your way. You remind us of Paul Simon, and I went, golly, if I could be. Wow. A 1 millionth of Paul Simon. Anyway, I was green and learned a lot, but they really got me started in teaching me how to record and to play and, uh, you know, write songs. And, and then I met, you know, my wife Nancy when I was down there at Muscle Shoals and she's from the area. And we've been together ever since we got married, live long distance. And I finally moved to Nashville about, you know, 20 years ago. And, uh, and I love it here. The South is so amazing. There's a, you know, there's a thing in the South that's really beautiful. You go into a Southern church and play your songs and your music and people are hooting and ha ho- I come from Norwegianville, you know, Garrison Keeler makes fun of it, but people just sit on their hands kind of and the response that people give to music in the South, you start to realize, what's in the water at Muscle Shoals, you know, and how jazz music came up from the south and New Orleans and Mississippi. And we're in an area of the world where there's more, you know, that Muscle Shoals documentary is really amazing. It talks about this whole area that we live in, the music. And so when I came down here, that's probably the biggest thing I felt. And then all these amazing talented people. Oh,
0: man, it's great. At what point did you decide, I want to help people?
2: You know, it's interesting. I, uh, I was starting to be asked to come and play for uh, people in recovery. And I started to write songs sort of about my spiritual journey and uh, being angry at God, different things like that. And I started writing those songs and recording them. And a couple of them got into a movie. And I said, you know, this is I didn't really plan on it, but they say, come and talk to some of these people and play your songs for them. And I started doing that long, long time ago. And I think that that's kind of what started this little path for me to end up working out of Cumberland Heights. You know, I really do. I still tour and go out to several places, but I really found a home at Cumberland Heights doing this with music. And, uh, you know, since learning about some stuff and being a licensed counselor and some other little tools that i've been given but man i get to go play piano and guitar and sing and you know i get to play the blues and jazz and heartfelt stuff spiritual stuff i just found a place for the music you know and so i feel really fortunate first of all um and I've tried to get record deals, and then I've had some little ones, things like that, you know, and uh, some offers to go the real popular kind of route with the music. But something in my heart keeps telling me to sing about this stuff that I know that's kind of important that can help people. And I don't know. I didn't plan on it, tell you that.
1: Where Can you say some of the places around here, people come see you play?
2: Well, I play around the country a lot uh-huh. in the, in the Midwest, and I, You know, when I came to Nashville, I played at Merchant's upstairs at the piano while people were eating dinner. I did all those gigs for two, three years. And then uh, I was playing uh, at Criallos down in Cool Springs, a little restaurant. And I'm in there. Nobody's in the bar at all. And a guy comes walking in, throws a set of keys down on the table. He orders a Coke and a piece of pie, and I'm playing. And I'm playing a song and I go, I'll just play something of my own, you know. And he goes, What the hell are you doing here? I said, Well, what the hell are you doing here? And we we start to have a discussion. And, you know, a year later he produced one of my first records down here in Nashville. So it kinda does <laughs> it kinda does happen. There's more to the conversation. <laughs> you know. They just and, didn't jump and put
1: you in the car and take you to the recording studio. No, right, no, right it away? took
2: a little while, you know. <laughs> but uh I don't know. Uh, it's funny how this divine thing that lots of people talk about—you kind of n- never know where you're going or plan on it—and then all of a sudden you look around and whoa, here I am! You know, how did I get here? It's kind of cool. That's that's kind of what's happened to me.
0: Well, with that being in, sorry, Greg, I'm, no, go ahead. With that, with uh, you, you do your thing at Cumberland Heights. Uh, you get you reach somebody, they change your life, and you don't talk to them for a couple of years, and then you see them and they're still on that straight path that you set them on uh, that's got to be amazingly gratifying and beautiful
2: yeah and i you know i um i want to be careful i don't think i said anybody um uh, i want to be careful and humble about sure. that part but you you know you've got the right point we get all put on this path i tell you it's like seeing an old um just an old buddy from I played a lot of baseball and we had some really good baseball teams and when you see your old sports buddies yeah that's what it's like and it's like yeah and you can tell you can tell the minute you see somebody at the other eye, end of the aisle at the grocery store you can tell if they're on their path cuz they'll come straight towards you if they're if they they're, they're not they're running over the cucumbers you know getting out of the and uh So it's a, it's a really gratifying feeling when, for all anybody that's on any kind of path like that, to just see each other, know you're doing okay. You know, you'll see guys with their little kids. And that just, I just love to see that. When a child looks up at the old man and knows the old man's actually paying attention and not thinking about the drugs or the alcohol. And he's walking with his wife, you know, or, those things are happening every day, right along with all all the sad stories, you know, but people need help. They need the information. They need to know that it's okay, that you're not bad. This is the, you know, it's, it's a disease, just like heart disease or cancer or anything else. So we got to just raise awareness like that. And so that people can pick up a phone and say, Hey, you know, I need help. My wife needs help opioids and alcohol it goes right across you guys know that you know it doesn't matter who you are you know or how much money you got or don't have when it gets you it gets you you know
1: is we are in the midst of what's called an opioid uh, p- pandemic uh epidemic whatever you want to label it um is there there probably is never the end in sight, right? This is a constant fight. It's just not gonna wake up one morning a year from now, five years from now, that everything's over. It's right. ongoing. Is have we passed the tipping point of where it's getting back better, or is it getting worse?
2: Well, I don't know if I'm qualified. You know, I have an opinion. And you're right, if you look back historically after World War One and all those soldiers came back. You know, in our country, you could buy cocaine in the Sears catalog and morphine. You know, the roots of opioids. It was used really, really a lot and was basically legal to use. You know, then alcohol took over. It's hard to imagine that alcohol was so bad that uh, we made laws, like the whole Congress, <laughs> right? <laughs> and everybody went, "Yeah, we gotta, we're gonna prohibit alcohol." Of course, it didn't get people from drinking it. But humans, I just believe, are going to keep trying to find some way to null the pains, you know, the difficulties of life. And I don't think our brains are going to change a whole lot. So the question is, how do we get, there's prevention and treatment. You know, people need to learn about what this is. I think that will really help people to educate them, first of all, especially with opioids, you know. you can go to the hospital and those doctors are really trained and I may get in a little trouble here but why not they're taught and trained and said the research says you know this is safe to take this stuff and it's not and people need to try to find an alternative to some different ways to treat pain you know sometimes you need to take them and in those cases you know you have people around you that are you hold you accountable and they count how many are taken, but it's a dangerous road to fall down. And I think we're trying our best, you know, and it it takes money also. And are people willing to put the resources into that? Can we fight the pharmaceutical companies? You know, bless their hearts, a lot of people invest money in that too, and it's all for profit. So where does our health kind of take the front, seed in all this stuff it's just there's i have more questions and i'm really i can give you answers and i don't feel like we're even taking a small bite out of it you I, know what i mean
0: i had a thing a few years ago uh, i had a bad kidney stone so they gave me medicine some kind of pain pill and then i went to work on the pain pills i actually got on tv i had to do my job i had a kidney stone that hurt so bad that i had the pain pill <laughs> and uh, john afterwards i went on the parking lot and I was sweating like a pig, and I said, What have I just done? and so I threw the pills away. I just and I sold a kidney stone. You know, it was just one of wow. the I just thank God I was able to realize that, you know, I could have taken those because I was feeling good. I mean, those pills made me feel really good. And I'm like, this is not good for me because I know where this could go. Uh is that a divine intervention? <laughs> I,
2: I don't you know, I, I think it is. I you know. It's great to hear a story like that. You you must have had some awareness that I don't want to feel like this way because you're up there doing the sports, yep, right? Yep. And part of you wants to just walk over and start doing the weather. And <laughs> this is unacceptable behavior. That right. may be a bad example, you know, but most of us who fall into this trap have to have some really bad consequences and things. We just can't make the decision anymore. I'm not a scientist enough to know exactly when you cross that line right but it it absolutely has to do with your kind of your genetic makeup and exposure and environment you know maybe it's just the fact that you're on tv you know i don't want to get caught doing this i don't want to look silly on television but it's too, too late for it's that. It's too late. I <laughs> knew that. I teed that right <laughs> was, up for you, I, I, I? meant I had I, to swing on I that. I get one. another biscuit for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he was waiting over there for that one. <laughs> just waiting for that. Uh, but I, that's one of the things where I was like, thank God. I just don't – I I didn't take it to the next level when so many other people took it to the next level. And just, you know, I, I, a part of that is I've got two kids, and I wasn't going to screw their lives up.
2: Yeah. It's the people that are alone, that don't have family or uh, – You know a lot of people are alone and you know the whole covid thing and uh with a lot of people being at home and alone and stuff has affected this a lot too and people have you know a lot more people are coming in saying you know i couldn't go to work i couldn't do this musicians that couldn't go on the road and i stayed at home i pick up the bottle and i start doing that stuff so you know it's really a good time to talk about it god i wish there was some fancy cure for all this you know there probably never will be but there are some programs and fellowships which have come into this world and uh, they are really really effective and uh, you know it's uh how do i say this there's a spiritual solution you know plus there's some physical stuff you can do but if you ask for help i think you can get it
0: well, that's the thing. If somebody's listening to this podcast and they are know somebody that's got a problem or they themselves got a problem, what is step one?
2: Well, pick up the telephone and, and uh, get on your phone and look up, you know, I, I, it'd be easy for me to say, call Cumberland Heights. Or if you know someone else that's in recovery, you know, pick up the telephone and tell someone and ask for help. And even if it's really hard to get it out, if you get with the right person and the right set of ears, you know, they can get you some help. But call, you know, a facility, call somewhere and get some help. And then those people will direct you. You'll kind of get an answer. Sometimes there's other ways to go besides going to treatment, you know, some fellowships and different things.
1: John, thank you for doing
2: this. Well, and thank, thank you, you, thank all. you for what you do. Well, thanks, man. Appreciate it very much. I'm lucky. Very lucky. so? How were well, you lucky? To get to do this kind of stuff. Uh, get to do something that, when I was a little kid, I, th- I thought I always wanted to be a priest. I really did. I was raised Catholic and the priests were nice and that's what they want all the little boys to do. Because I noticed they did nice stuff for people. All the time they were helping people. And something inside me has always told me that I could be kind of like a priest until I turned 13. <laughs> <laughs> and then other things took precedent. <laughs> but there's still a part of me. I think this part of me now enables me to just be a part of something that's positive and
0: good for people. Beautiful. John McAndrew, Kremlin Heights. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Again, that's the Official 615 podcast brought to you by good friends at Wilson County Hyundai. And Greg, as we look back in this, uh, let's do hope somebody takes that first step and gets help.
1: Yeah. Thanks again to Omni Nashville Hotel. All the great people here at Kitchen Oats, the biscuits, and everything. And thank you, John, for stopping by.
2: Thank you.